0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so this morning we come to the close of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatians in the end of our series that we've been calling What Makes Us Family. And the close to this letter, it in some sense summarizes the entirety of the letter, a letter that's really all about living together as family. And each close of an epistle is a little bit different, so the sermon ends up a little bit different, and that's true this morning. As we look at these final eight verses, what we're going to do is uh, we're actually going to look back over the entirety of the letter in our series and and look back over all that we have learned through this. And one of the things that Paul's going to show us today is he's going to speak to us and share with us the motives of those who came in. He's going to give us the what behind the why, so to speak, or the why behind the what, so to speak. And then what we're going to do is we're going to close the sermon by reading this letter in its entirety, which is really the way Paul intended the letter to be read. I don't think he set out for us to read this fifteen-minute letter over fifteen weeks, and so we're going to end it with one reading of the letter, the way that it would have been read throughout the churches in Galatia. But when we begin here in verse eleven, we notice there's a there's a change, a rather significant change that takes place. Look down here with me, Galatians chapter six, verse eleven. Paul writes, see with what large letters I am writing you with my own hand. Now up to this point in the letter, Paul, he's been dictating this letter to a scribe, to a secretary, to, a, to an amanuensis anu- uh, as they would be known as. And and I can only imagine, right, I can only imagine this, this poor kid, right, like frantically trying to keep up and capturing each and every one of the like over 2,000 words that Paul has been just spewing over the course of this letter, this very personal and impassionate letter. And what we know is only by the power of the Spirit did this poor kid actually capture each and every word and do a far better job than Siri could ever hope to do. At capturing a single talk to text, right? There's no autocorrects in this letter. The Spirit ensured that that didn't happen. But I'm picturing Paul. Like as he as he's doing this, like he's just pacing back and forth, and he's he he's going over all these things that he wants to say to these people, and we know from the letter he he would much rather have been with him than have to write to him, but he he can't at this time, and so he's pacing back and forth in the in this small room. I'm picturing in in Antioch. It's, it's not been long since he, he got back from this first missionary journey where he had planted these churches throughout the region of Galatia, uh, stories that we read in Acts 13 and 14. And he's writing, remember, he's not just writing to churches that he planted, right? He's writing to people that he loved. And, and Paul, he's, he's agitated, and rightly so. And we've heard that passion come out throughout this letter, haven't we? Those moments where we were—we had to go back and reread that verse in our Paul voice, which is kind of like our outside voice, our mommy voice—at um, least the way my mom had to speak to me too many times. And uh, he was astonished, he says. That's how it begins. I was, I'm astonished, he says in verse 6 in the opening chapter. And he's astonished because of how quickly some of the people in these churches, how quickly they were deserting the gospel that, that Paul had just preached to them months earlier and now turning to another gospel, one of law rather than grace. You see, Paul preached of God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ faith that as we've seen throughout this letter makes us family faith that defines us as followers of jesus faith that unites us as family as a family of god it's because of our faith in christ that we are no longer enemies of god but his beloved adopted chosen children we are we are his sons and daughters and it is this faith that unites us with each other. This is no longer a room full of, of strangers. No, we are siblings. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But after Paul left, and not long after Paul left, this, this group of, of Jewish Christians came in. All right? these, are, these are biological descendants of, of Abraham. Those who, who believe that Jesus was the Christ, this promised Messiah spoken of throughout the Old Testament. And they came in and they were questioning Paul. They were questioning his status as an apostle and his message of the gospel. And and they were claiming that while faith in Jesus is is good, it is necessary. They said it's not enough. All right, there's more you got to do. Right? There's more that these, these former pagans needed to do in order to be accepted by God and included in his family and to be sort of grafted into the family as now uh, adopted children of Abraham. And what they needed to do, as they said, they needed to, to adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic Law, right? specifically bearing that mark of the covenant, the mark of circumcision. But not only that, they also needed to uh, They abide by certain aspects of Jewish culture, right? especially uh, observing their food laws and celebrating the holy days we've seen Paul refer to in this letter. What they were saying is that in order to be Christian, you need to first be Jewish. You need to be more Jewish to be more Christian. You need to look more like us and line up with us. And what they were doing is they were, they were adding these additional requirements to faith in Jesus. Requirements that restricted others from relationship. Restricting who they let into their doors and who they let into their family. And what we've seen throughout this letter, throughout our series, is that don't we as the church, don't we do that very same thing at times to this very day? expecting people to have met a certain list of prerequisites in order to be admitted through our doors as though we've given the welcome team like a little clipboard of things they got to ask you get a little intake questionnaire to come in the door to see what your what your life is like the choices you've made the struggles you struggle with and only if you pass through them are you allowed in requiring adherence to a certain set of cultural norms to then be accepted into our family Right? We, 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 the church, we've set the standard that you must meet before you're ever even allowed into our doors. And, and we might not say that you're not welcome in our family, but man, we're sure good at showing it, aren't we? The passive-aggressive, no thank you. And when we do this, rather than pointing people to Jesus, we end up pushing people away from Jesus, don't we? Restricting them from relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. When in fact the good news of the gospel is intended to be an invitation into a relationship, isn't it? An invitation that has been extended to everyone. Family and relationship that is available to anyone. Right? Relationship with with God as our Father. Relationship with, with others as our family. Relationship with the church. The bride, the body of Christ. A church that Jesus showed John in Revelation 7 that would contain a great multitude that that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, all standing before Jesus, worshiping together with one loud voice then then and 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 celebrating the beauty in that diversity of worship for we are all one in Christ Jesus Paul said in the end of chapter 3 amen that's what it looks like but the reason it so often doesn't is based on a simple misunderstanding of the gospel isn't it of what the gospel is and what the gospel does And that's the very reason Paul set out to write this letter to the churches in Galatia. He set out to correct that misunderstanding in the opening first section of this letter, which was much more biographical in nature, wasn't it? As he tells his own story in these first two chapters, defending his status as an apostle, showing how he was commissioned by Jesus himself, and defending his message of the gospel, one that was revealed to him by Jesus himself. And he, and he tells this incredible story of how Jesus, Jesus completely transformed his life, right? Remember, he was, he was an assassin turned apostle, a persecutor turned preacher. But that's what Jesus does, isn't it? That's the norm. But not only did we see how the gospel transforms us, we also saw how the gospel unites us. That rather than being divided by our differences, we are called to be united by our faith. But here, this morning, in this final passage in chapter 6, this this closing uh, postscript of the letter, if you will, Paul takes the pen into his own hands now. And and writing in his own hand, it says that he writes these these extra large letters that were were visibly different from from that that was above it on this piece of parchment that they were writing on. And some will say, well, Paul's got bad eyesight. Remember before when they said something about you you would have gouged out your eyes for me because I can't see very well. Right? They didn't have bifocals then, so just give me your eyeballs. That'll work, right? Some say it was a bad eyesight. Some say, you know what, he probably just had really poor penmanship, and this other guy, like, he's paid to write well, so let's just have him do it. Kind of like, remember when, um, did your moms make you write thank you cards when you were a kid? Yeah? Remember how when you were, like, really little, she would write for you, and then you would write it, and what you wrote kind of just looked like that? Right? So some are saying, maybe that's what Paul's handwriting looked like. But the most probable reason for why he wrote with such large letters in his own hand now was that he wanted to draw special attention to these closing words. Think of it like this. Think of it like that text message that you sent in all caps to really make sure you got the point home. And not just all caps, but bolded, underlined, italicized, and in like 42-point font, just to make sure they got the point. While everything he said up to this point is important, it's even more so now as he reveals the motives for why these, these outsiders came in after Paul, preaching law rather than grace. Look with me at what he says in verse 12 and 13. He said, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh had nothing to do with trying to faithfully follow the way of Jesus This had nothing to do with bringing glory to God but it had everything to do with two things it had everything to do with avoiding suffering and with bringing glory to themselves and there was nothing there was nothing authentic about what they were doing nothing authentic about their motives right this was all this was all just a performance this was just just a putting on a good show for everyone to see and so it's important to see here that they weren't, they weren't forcing these Gentile Christians, these former pagans, to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God and included in the family. They really kind of could have cared less. No, this was all about them. This was about them being accepted in the Roman world and included in, in the world's culture. Because, see, they didn't want to stand out as Christian. They didn't want to be known or perceived publicly as followers of Jesus. Jesus. Why would that be? Well, if we go back a couple thousand years, what we see is that the Jewish people had negotiated a a truce, so to speak, with the Roman Empire. They had been given a a religious exemption, so to speak. And uh, they were given an exemption from worshiping Caesar as Lord as long as they obeyed Caesar. Just, Just don't disrupt anything. And they were given an exemption from praying to the Roman gods, to the Roman gods, as long as they prayed for Rome and for the gods. But then come these Christians who, who put this truce, this exemption, at risk because they refused to worship Caesar as Lord. And not only did they not worship Caesar, they worshiped Jesus as Lord. They dare to worship someone else above Caesar. They refused to pray to the Roman gods. They refused to participate in their cultic festivals. And by doing so, the surrounding community viewed them as putting themselves at risk because they were angering the gods. But they not only put this negotiated truce at risk, they also put their lives at risk by doing this. And so what some thought is that if we could just tone it down a little bit with the Jesus stuff, if we could just look a little bit less like Jesus and a little bit more like everyone else, if we could kind of even make it so that we look kind of like an offshoot of Judaism, that'd that'd be okay. That'd be good. You guys okay with that? And like Paul was like, no, I'm not okay with that. All they were doing is they wanted to avoid the persecution that came with being a follower of Jesus. They wanted to avoid suffering. Because see, what happens so often is that we want the benefits of the cross without the suffering that accompanies the cross. And we want the benefits of the cross without the suffering that accompanies the cross. Because here's the thing, there is no salvation without suffering, is there? There's none. Because Jesus, he, he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple... Let him deny himself and take up his cross, not once, not twice, but daily, every day, and follow me every step of the way. As we share in Christ's sufferings, the suffering servant Isaiah wrote about. But the show that they were putting on, it was, it was not only to avoid the suffering by hiding their faith, it was building up their status, building their platform by, by flaunting their faith to others. They were going around like, look at us, look at, all the, look at all the good that we've done, look at our Instagram profile, we got a lot of pictures of all the stuff that we did. They didn't have that 2,000 years ago, but I think that's what they would have said if they did. But they're like, look at all the people we served, look at all the people we saved, look at our numbers, right? We came and we corrected all the mistakes that Paul made. Paul gave you some good stuff, but we gave you the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Because of us, because of our coming to you, because of the law that we have given you, our ways, these rules, by following our rules, by looking like us and lining up with us, now you will actually be God's children, his family. And yet what he says is these hypocrites required things of others that they didn't actually do themselves, did they? Their own rules didn't apply to them. They were above the rules. They didn't keep the law, he says, that they forced on others because, after all, this was all just a show. It was a sham. They just wanted to make themselves look good. Yet again, I think we see how similar we are to the church 2,000 years ago and how applicable this letter is to us today. Because aren't we motivated by the very same self-centered desires at times? Kneeling down and offering sacrifices and worshiping at the very same altars of, of comfort and of approval and acceptance. Right? We are we're prone to hide our faith at times, aren't we? All right, we're prone to hide our faith at times, worshiping at the altar of comfort by trying to blend in and make a good show so that others won't see us and recognize us as followers of Jesus. We just blend into the background. It's like we're that Homer Simpson meme, just going back into the bushes. Nothing to see here, folks. All right, But that's exactly what Peter did the night before Jesus died, wasn't it? Jesus is standing trial to be condemned to blasphemy and treason. And Peter's out in the courtyard trying to warm himself by the fire and denies not just knowing Jesus, but being a follower of Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, just as Jesus said he would. But let's also acknowledge we don't live in a culture that violently persecutes Christians. We don't. Not like in Paul's day. Not like in other parts of the world in our day. So it is different, but yet I think we still find ourselves facing situations where, if we're honest, we would just assume hide our faith, wouldn't we? Like, oh, we don't need to, I'm not going to share that, I'm not going to lead with that. Hi, my name's Ashley, I'm a, I'm a Christian, nice to meet you. Uh, also, another thing is like a question pastors ask each other is, how long does it take you in a conversation before you reveal that you're actually a pastor? Because I think a lot of times, really, what's happening is we want to avoid being associated with what so much of the world perceives as Christian and evangelical anymore, don't we? Can we acknowledge it's a little embarrassing at times? Because rather than being known by our love for others, I think we're more known by our hostility toward others, aren't we? I think rather than being known by what we are for, we're more often known by who and what we are against. To the point that, um, if I'm honest, I've come to kind of avoid the labels anymore, the the, the single word labels. Because here's the thing, when you you use that word, and I'm not talking theological words like sanctification, justification, I'm talking about cultural words, I don't know what you mean by that word. They're loaded words, aren't they? Ask 10 people, probably get 10 different definitions. Here's an example. Last week I was working in a coffee shop down in Arlington Heights. Down in Arlington Heights, it's like over there, like a half mile. I acted like I went on some weekend retreat, and uh, I was working on—I was actually working on this sermon, reading for this sermon uh, last week, the, the week before. And I was—I was chuckling. I was reading this commentary by Scott McKnight as he's critiquing the church, and it was one of those. It was so true. You—the only response was to laugh. And so this guy that I knew was working over here at this other table. He's—he's he's starting to pack up, and he comes over, and he's like what are you working on so hard, and what is so funny? And I said, I'm, I'm working on my sermon for next week, and I had a part that I uh, it was unfortunately funny. He goes, oh, are you a, you, a, you a pastor? What church are you at? And I said, yeah, I'm a, a pastor at a Redemption Bible Church. We're just down the road in, uh, at Golf in 83. And he goes, are you guys evangelical? I paused like I did just there. That was for dramatic effect. And I was thinking to myself, what does this guy mean by that word? How does he define that word? And so one of my favorite scenes from the West Wing, and there's like 8,000 favorite scenes, was um, when Leo's running for vice president, he's advised by his press secretary uh, to basically ignore the premise of the question if you don't like the question. That's what I did. So instead of giving him a yes-no answer that would have put me in some sort of predefined category that I was not privy to, his definition of, I said, yeah, we're, um, you know, we're just a little small church family that's trying to faithfully follow the way of Jesus by loving others like Jesus. And you know what his response to that was? Way to go, brother. Keep it up. And then we spent the next few minutes talking about my sermon, talking about the book of Galatians, what it meant. He had no idea. and. Uh, it was really cool. And uh, hear me say, not every conversation goes like that. Uh, I'm sure sometimes you'll get a coffee dumped on you at some point. Hopefully it's not too hot. But, um, but here's the thing, here's what I want to encourage us to do. Rather than hiding our faith, let's make our faith visible. But as we do that, let's, let's live in such a way that we, um, let's not live in a way that affirms the world's assumptions about what they think we believe but live in such a way that invites others in to ask us questions about what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Let's stop pushing people away from Jesus and let's start pointing people to Jesus by loving like Jesus, amen? Let's be a church that does not look like the caricature the world has drawn of us. But we're prone to hide our faith at times, but number two, we're also prone to flaunt our faith at times. Worshiping at the altar of approval and acceptance by trying to to stand out so that others will notice us and see how great we are, wanting others to see all the good that we have done. Look at us, how awesome we are. And and we find ourselves in this decades-long chapter of church history that I pray is coming to an end, uh, where we are absolutely infatuated with numbers and growth. Right? We're measuring the success of the church based on how big you are and how fast you're growing. And what that's done is it's caused us to, to pursue efficiency over faithfulness at times. Running the church more like a business rather than shepherding the flock God has entrusted to us. And as I think about this... Um, I was invited this week to a conference by a church down the road and the subject of the email was something along the lines of your church attendance is declining we've got basically five ways for you to get your attendance back up. And I couldn't have hit delete any faster. I should go back and probably pray for the church too but I also had to pray for myself because there was a part of me that wanted to go. There's a part of me that still gets caught up in the numbers. There's a part of me that it hasn't entirely broken. But what I know in those moments is God has not called us to pursue bigger, better, faster as a church, has he? Mm -mm. He, He hasn't called us to satisfy our customers by giving them a greater return on their investment. No, he's called us to faithfully pursue growth that is slower than we want it to be, goes deeper than sometimes we're comfortable with, but is stronger than we could ever imagine. And it leads, not to a greater investment in this world, but greater intimacy with Jesus. And that's what we're all after, isn't it? That's what we all want. Like, I'm a numbers guy. I love spreadsheets. And I used to, when I would put them together for us, I, I had this line, uh, behind every number lies a name, and behind every name lies a story. blah, blah. Blah. How about this, guys? How about we focus less on the numbers and more on the names and the stories? That's not okay? Uh, we can still have spreadsheets. They're still a good gift from God. But we can worship at the idol, at the altar of spreadsheets and the data they contain. But again, don't get me wrong. I would, I would love for each and every one of these green chairs to be filled with people on a Sunday morning. This room filled with our voices, passionately worshiping Christ every Sunday. I'd love for that lobby to be just chock full of people elbow to elbow, meeting someone that's that's new to you each and every week. I would love to serve more and more families as they come through at the pantry each month. I would love to have small groups just bursting at the seam and and having to do more and more sessions of the way. I would love all of that. Don't get me wrong, but But rather than rushing that growth by spreading everything with fertilizer, let's steward the growth God has given us with sustained faithfulness, okay? Let's enjoy this season of spring that we talked about last week. This season where some of the seed that we have scattered over the last two, three, four, five years has begun to to sprout. It's come up out of the ground and it, it might not be bearing the fruit we want yet, but It's it's really exciting when you see, by the way, my grass seed still hasn't sprouted from last Thursday. But when it does, it's really exciting. And what we're tempted to do when we see it pop up is like, oh, now we got to go, 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 go. No, 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 no. Let's enjoy this and let's steward it and move at God's pace. And let's embrace and enjoy being the church God has created and called us to be. Amen? Let's reject this idea of boasting in who we are and in what we've done, bringing glory to ourselves. And instead, let's do what Paul calls us to here in the next two verses, as he calls us to not boast in ourselves, but to boast in Christ and what he has done. Not bringing glory to ourselves, but bringing glory to what God has done through Christ. Look at verse 14 and 15. He says, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. And in the Roman world, the cross was a symbol of shame and defeat. In the Jewish world, we've seen in this letter, the, only the cursed hung on the tree crucifixion, it was the single most shameful way for a human being to die, reserved for the lowest of criminals, the lowest class of human beings. But just like in Encanto, remember, they didn't talk about Bruno. No, 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 did they? No. In the Greco-Roman world, they didn't talk about crucifixion. No, 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 no. You don't talk about it. They didn't even mention the word publicly. They didn't talk about it in society. Yet here's Paul. Here's Paul boasting in this most horrific act. He's turned the cross into a symbol of love. He's he's turned it into a a symbol of victory, of our victory. I mean, can you fathom the electric chair being worn around your neck? I, I can't, but that's in some sense what we're doing. That is how Countercultural, everything about our walk with Christ is boasting in this, declaring victory, because he says back in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, A person is not justified. Remember, we are not accepted by God or included in his family by, by works of the law, by what you do, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Right? Our victory over sin was secured by Christ's death on the cross. Amen. And that death, his death, in some sense, Paul says leads to our death. He went on to say in verse 20 that we were, we were crucified with Christ some 2,000 years ago as Jesus. He, he took on our sin, didn't he? Our sin was nailed there with him on the cross. But not only that, he says here that the world has been crucified. Our old way of thinking, our old way of living has died, and we are a new creation, one that is free, free from the the burden of the Mosaic law. Now circumcision accounts for nothing. Circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter, because our acceptance before God is now found in Christ. We are free from the, the burden of the Mosaic law, we are free from the from bondage to sin, because Christ defeated the power that sin holds over us. And now we are a new creation, a new family. And that is a bold claim for Paul to make. One that we saw him back up in support with evidence, right? Like an, like an attorney in a courtroom throughout the second section of the letter in chapters 3 and 4, which, which we saw was much more theological in nature as we spent those two chapters reflecting Right, Reflecting on our story of faith as Paul, he presented our experience as evidence. We reflected on faith in the Old Testament as he presented uh, the faith of Abraham as evidence. How by faith we also received the blessings that were promised to Abraham. Blessings of God's acceptance adopted into his family and of his presence, Right, the indwelling of his spirit. We reflected on our misunderstanding of the Mosaic law, of of God's covenant promises in relation to the law, of the law's purpose to reveal sin and its limited function and duration, like we described it as training wheels that help God's people stand upright and learn how to live, learn how to balance. We reflected on our union in Christ and that intimacy that comes with it. And then we reflected on the destructive nature of legalism and how it destroys that intimacy, right? Robbing our joy, dividing the family, and stunting our growth. Because he closed that section showing us that by faith in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to the old covenant of law, but we are free in the new covenant of grace. And this changes the way we live. In this freedom, together as family, by faith. And he says in verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This walk, this rule, this way of living, a faithfully following the way of Jesus. Obeying the words of Jesus. It is in response to the peace that we have with God because of the mercy we have received from God bestowed upon us, the the church, the new Israel of God, the new people of God, the new family of God. And that's what Paul showed us in the third and final section, didn't he, in chapters 5 and 6. More practical and applicable in nature. As we we saw uh, how we are to live in the freedom that Christ secured for us. right, Free of those legalistic structures that we rely on to hold us up, to keep us from falling in sin, and instead living by the power of the Spirit and His guiding Which we saw last week leads to living for the good of one another, loving one another by bearing one another's burdens, not growing weary of doing good, but doing good to who? Everyone. You remembered that word? That was good. Doing good to everyone as opportunity presents itself. And what I love is that like Paul couldn't be any different from the people he just got done talking about, could he? They were putting on a show. They didn't hold themselves accountable to their own rules, but that wasn't Paul. No, Paul doesn't ask anything of us. He wasn't already doing himself. That's Paul imitating Christ and calling us to imitate him. And he closes in verse 17 and 18 saying, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I get it, Paul. Sometimes he's like, can we just like take a deep breath, y'all? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And just like Jesus, the suffering servant he followed, the Messiah that he put his faith and trust in, Paul bore the marks of suffering. He he bore physical marks. He, He was stoned to the brink of death as he left Lystra in Galatia. He bore emotional and relational marks of betrayal. All the result of bearing his own cross as he faithfully followed the way of Jesus. All in contrast to the mark of circumcision. He bore the marks of faithfulness, not of law. And I think we get a lesson from Paul in this. It's that we don't avoid the suffering that comes with following Jesus because we embrace it, don't we? We are ready for it. Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. There's something strange were happening. It's going to happen. Pick up our cross daily and we follow Jesus. And what I love is despite all that we've read, all of the Paul voice in this letter, man, he wasn't angry and he wasn't bitter. He was agitated. And he wasn't angry. Instead he prayed for God's grace to be on these churches, for God's spirit to be with these people. People that he loved, his brothers, his sisters, his family. Knowing that in spite of our differences, and we have many of them, it is our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us family. That's the letter. That's the big idea of this entire letter. And so I want to do something. We've never done this before, but I want to close our series by just reading this letter through with you. A letter that we spent the last 15 weeks going through and looking at, but I want us to hear it in its entirety the way, and Paul intended for it to be heard, the way the churches in Galatia would have heard. We're not going to put the words up on the screen. I'm not even going to ask you to pull out your Bible. I just want you to listen to these words that Paul wrote to these people 2,000 years ago, but words also written for us. The letter of Paul to the Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you before, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't have been a servant of Christ. I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, it's not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you, you've heard of my former life in Judaism. It's no secret how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Now I didn't go up to Jerusalem either to those who were apostles before me. Instead, I went away into Arabia and I returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only hearing it saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with us. And I went because of a revelation. And I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I wasn't running or had run in vain. But even Titus, he, who was with me, he, he wasn't forced to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was was eating with Gentiles, as we should. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, they acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, nobody will be justified. But if in order, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Of course not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor and a sinner. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Because see, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, for saying that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And so those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And to give a human example, brothers, even a, even a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But notice it doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your singular offspring, who is indeed Christ. And, and here's what I mean by this. The law, which came 430 years after this, it doesn't annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, so then why the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Of course not. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? And here's the thing, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave. And though he's the owner of everything, he's under a guardian and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also, when, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But man, when the fullness of time had come, you know what God did? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. But formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. But now that you come to know God, or or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. To be once more? I'm afraid, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. Please, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. I know my condition was a trial to you. You didn't, you didn't scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God or as Christ Jesus himself. What then become of your blessedness? For I, for I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your own eyeballs out for me and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for for who am I, again, in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you? I wish so badly that I could be present with you right now and change my tone, for I am just absolutely perplexed about you. So tell me something. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Like, have you even read it? Because I don't think you have. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free through promise. Now, we can interpret this allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Man, the Jerusalem above is and she is our mother for it is written rejoice O barren one who does not bear break forth and cry aloud you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be no more than those the one who has, has a husband will be more than those of the one who has a husband now you brothers like Isaac you're children of promise but just at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now but what does the scripture say? It says, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of absolutely no advantage to you. It will be as if he died for no purpose. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Right? You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts as anything, but only faith, and that faith working through love. Guys, you are... You were running so well. You were doing so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, it's not from God. It's not from him who calls you. But as you've seen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I have confidence in the Lord that you will will take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves and cut themselves off from you. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, if you continue biting and devouring one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I have a better way. I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify those desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, they're against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, they're evident, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, on and on and on with things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before when I was with you, that those who do such things, those who embrace such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I don't want that for you. But the fruit of the Spirit Fruit of the Spirit is vibrant and beautiful. It is love and joy. It is peace and patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And So if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, can you do me a favor? You who are spiritual, you who are filled with the Spirit, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, though, as well, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens as to fill the law of Christ. But know that if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, You are simply deceiving yourself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will reap with corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit... Will from the spirit reap eternal life and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up and we remain faithful and so then as we have opportunity as those doors are open let us step through and let us do good to everyone and especially those who are the household of faith and see with what large letters i'm writing you with my own hand it is to those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may, be, may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Man, far be it for me to boast in anything, in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me. An eye to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, but let's not go too far the other way because neither does uncircumcision. The only thing that counts is a new creation by faith in Christ. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.